Hey, if you got a Bible, Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some notes you can follow along with us there on your chair or here on screen. Those of you watching online, we're glad you're tuning in. There should be a notes section there on our website. You can click on that and download the notes to follow along. We're going to continue along in this collection of talks that we've called Ghost Writing and Pen Names, which if you're new to this series, it's theorized that a guy named John Mark is actually who wrote the book of your Bible, the second book in your New Testament called Mark. Uh, They believe that the disciple Peter is who uh, recounted these events to Mark, uh, John Mark. John Mark was the disciple Peter's personal attendant, so they believe that he wrote these events down. If you missed any of the previous messages, you can check them out online. They will live there forever unless Ralph and Vanellope wreck them by some chance, but uh, I apologize if they do. Here's what you need to know moving forward today. We learn in Scripture that Jesus has somewhat a hierarchy of opportunity when it comes to his people. For example, we know in Luke chapter 10 that he had at least 72 disciples that were following him, 72 that he entrusted so much, he sent them out two by two with the gospel message to go preach and proclaim this good news uh, to the surrounding villages. And aside from the 72, we know that he had, a, uh, of course, the 12 apostles that he uh, gave the main thrust of the leadership responsibilities to. But then of those 12 apostles, we also learn that he had three who were super close. He gave special access to Peter, James, and John. Uh, these three, Peter, James, and John, they were with him in the garden the night before Jesus was crucified. They went with Jesus to Jairus's house where Jesus raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. They were only ones in the room with him when he did that. In Mark chapter 9, shortly before the text that we're going to read, we find Peter, James, and John with Jesus on top of a mountain as he's transfigured into the glory of God. And quite literally, the light erupts out of his body as he meets with Elijah and Moses, which sounds crazy, I know, but don't get hung up on that yet. uh, We're going to pick up the story after that happened. That's what you need to know for now. These four men are coming down off the mountain. We're picking up in verse 14. When they, Peter, James, John, Jesus, returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them. And some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. Was all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up, said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, the disciples, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion. He fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, spirit often throws him into fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. 
father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. I command you to come out of this child. Never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. Murmur ran through the crowd of people and said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. Your translation might say by prayer and fasting. God, thank you for your word. We are asking you to do now what only you can do and speak to our hearts. Help us hear from you. God, you brought each person here today for a reason to speak to them. So do what only you can do. Supersede my words and speak to their hearts specifically. Overcome my shortcomings as we try and follow closer to your son, Jesus. Transform us into him as his image. We ask you to give us attentive hearts and spirits as we are transformed by your word. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You ever been riddled with doubt? Pastor, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. I am riddled with doubt every single day of my life right now. I don't know if I should wear a mask, if I shouldn't wear a mask. I don't know if I'm allowed to go. I was riddled with the doubt coming to church this morning. What do you mean riddled with? I'm riddled with doubt because you just got done telling us some man erupted with light on top of a mountain. I know, right? Imagine how I feel just trying to explain all that. But can you look back on your life and think about a time where you were so overcome with anxiety and so racked with doubt, the nerves and everything, you thought you were going to die. Maybe it was before a job. And you were like, well, is this the right job? Should I take this job? What about the boss? What about the pay? Is this going to be enough for my family? Are the coworkers nice? Are people going to like me? Maybe it was before you bought a new car. You're like, I don't know if this is the right one, the right color. What about the mileage? Is it going to last? Is it a big investment? Can I even afford this? Maybe before you got married, you had some doubts. If you're Sitting with your spouse, just lie to them and say, baby, not me. Not Grab their hand. Love you. I was never had a... But between you and I, you know, pastoral confidence, I can't tell them. You doubt it. Okay? So, So knowing your own doubts, hopefully you can be somewhat empathetic to this father who was riddled with doubt. A man who said to Jesus, I want to believe... But I have some concerns. Help me overcome my unbelief. Hopefully you can relate to the sentiment. Jesus, I don't know what's going to happen in all of this. And notice something here. Notice Jesus does not say unbelief. What are you coming at me? I'm the glory of God in human form. How dare you come at me with your unbelief? Purify your heart. Confess your sin. Get rid of all your doubts. Jesus doesn't say, go away and don't come back until you've wholly, completely, and totally worked out all the incertitude from your heart. Only then can you come to me and ask for my healing help. He doesn't say that. And let me tell you why that's good news for you today. Because helplessness, not holiness 
is the first step to accessing the presence of God. Helplessness, not holiness, is our first step to access the presence of God. But I thought the Bible says you got to have faith. No, George Michael said, and more recently, Limp Biscuit said, you got to have faith. Jesus said, you've got to obey. In fairness, that is what biblical faith is, to be obedient. So, uh, yeah, you kind of do have to have faith, but I don't like using that word faith because I feel like within the English language, they've kind of hijacked that word. Uh, I don't believe faith is something that you have to conjure up. I don't believe faith is something that you have to fabricate. I believe faith is trust. I believe faith is reverence. Faith is an acknowledgement of who you are in light of who God is. It's an action. It's not a feeling. Listen, faith is not about manufacturing something. It is about following someone. And faith is only required when you're completely helpless, which this dad is. Apparently, his son has been mute and deaf since he was born. And I'm sure, like you would, like any of us would, the dad has done everything in his power to help his son. But so far, it has been of no significance. He's done nothing to make the situation better. And whereas some people are paralyzed by their helplessness, this dad has not allowed his helplessness to turn into hopelessness. Uh, he, his hope has propelled him to go seek the help of Jesus. Now, something important happens here because he's looking for Jesus' help, but he settles on the disciples. Sometimes that's okay. God frequently does use his people to help the hurting, but in this case, it doesn't work. And I can't help but wonder how many of you have been looking for Jesus, but you settled on a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a job or things or money can't help but wonder how many of you have been looking for Jesus and you settled on a religion or a pastor or a spiritual leader and you put those people up on a pedestal believing that they're the ones who can help you when the reality is they have no more access to Jesus than you do. But that's not my point. That's just free information. My point is helplessness, not holiness, is the first step in accessing the presence of God. And I want you to put yourself in this scene. If you're a parent, it's easy for you to imagine what's going on because you would do anything to help your child. Isn't it the most helpless feeling in the world when you have little kids and they're sick and they can't tell you what's wrong and you're just pleading that something would happen and trying different things, giving them some Tylenol? I mean, I don't know how people who are not Christians do it. Uh, The anxiety of it all would be too much for me. But this is crazy because you see what Jesus does? He comes off the mountain perhaps still glowing from the transfiguration because it says when the people saw him, they were amazed. They were filled with awe. Why else could that be? And we see in the Old Testament, the same thing happened with Moses. Moses went up on a mountain, met with God, and he became radioactive. And he started glowing in the dark and people were like, what? And they were freaked out by it. So he had to wear this mask. And it wasn't the first time people had to wear masks in history of the world. But um, uh, was Jesus still glowing? We don't know. What we do know is Jesus' mountaintop experience quickly becomes a sheer cliff drop-off. Because as he comes off the mountain, everybody's arguing, his disciples are being taunted, and Jesus is like, what's going on? And nobody says anything, which is exactly what bullies do, right? They're all together and teasing one another, and nanny, nanny, boo-boo, and they don't know you're there, and you're like, "Uh, what's going on? And they're like, nothing. And they don't say anything. And uh, the dad 
forces his way to the front in front of the bullies and is like, hey, teacher, not God, not Messiah, not Lord, teacher, rabbi, brought my son to see you because he has a spirit, makes him mute and deaf, which that's a big deal. Don't miss that, because how does Jesus heal the boy? He speaks. Kid is deaf. Clearly, this is not some physical abnormality. People always want to explain away the miracles of God. It's one of demons. The kid's just got epilepsy. Right? As if that's any less miraculous, the fact that he doesn't have it anymore, but whatever. The dad says, I want you to heal him. You were gone, so I tried your disciples. Disciples humiliated her in the back, and they're like, we don't know Jesus. And Jesus scolds them. You faithless generation. How long must I put up with you? Calm down, Jesus. Right? Why are you getting so mad at us? I thought, and I did not expect that from Jesus, you know? I mean, I figured Jesus would be way more millennial than this. Like, well, did you try hard? You know, it, it doesn't matter who wins or loses. It's how you play the game, guys. Let's go get you a juice box, you know? Like, no fill up. We're not getting pop. Pop's bad for you. We're going to get you some Gatorade. Tastes amazing. H2O is better. Whatever. Why is Jesus so mad? Well, keep in mind, the disciples had been able to cast out demons before. See Mark chapter 6, when Jesus gives them the power and the ability to cast out demons, and uh, Jesus has given them the ability to do exactly what it is they're currently unable to do. With side note, you know, Jesus gave you some power. It's true. Check it out. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tested beyond your what? What's that say? Power to remain firm. And with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Peter, the guy who's writing our words in Mark, he also says this later in the book of Second Peter. His, Jesus, his divine power, next slide, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness throughout the knowledge of him who called us to his own uh, glory and excellence. In other words, Jesus' divine power lives in you, gives you all things that you need to live a life of godliness. A matter of fact, Jesus said that it's better for me to leave this earth and go back into heaven, John 16, 7, so that I can send you my helper, the Holy Spirit. And this helper, the Holy Spirit, he's going to give you power when he comes and lives in your life. But apparently, according to Mark chapter 9, spiritual power is not something that once possessed will always be available. Apparently, it has to be maintained and renewed. That's why Jesus is mad. Because his disciples, in his absence, have allowed their spiritual fervor to dampen. They were no longer able to do what they were called to do. See, sometimes your experience can be the enemy of what God wants to do. And even though these nice disciples have experienced a past success, they could not replicate it in the present. And I'm sure they thought, What's going on? We've done this before. And Bartholomew is like, don't worry, guys, I got this. And he gets up there and he says, expecto patronum. And everybody's like, what are you talking about, Bartholomew? And like Philip gets up there and he's like, no wonder nobody knows your name, Bartholomew, because what is it? You're so basic. And Philip gets up there and he's like, let me handle this, guys. And Andrew's like, no, I can do this. And everybody is like starting to argue. And because of their past success, Instead of trusting completely in Jesus, disciples began to believe in themselves. 
That is to say, the disciples couldn't help the boy not because of their ability. They had the, the ability. The disciples could not ha- help the boy because they didn't take advantage of their access to God. How often is that us? We just learned we have the power from Jesus to do all things that pertain to life and godliness. So how often do we go through our day without any acknowledgement that God is the one who's ultimately brought us through? And the absence of Jesus in our lives has allowed our spiritual fervor to dampen. And if you're going through something right now, maybe your problem isn't what you're doing. It's what you're not doing. You're not cultivating that devotion to God. I told you last week that there's hundreds of different ways that you can cultivate your relationship to God. That depending on your personality, there's a lot of different things that you can do. And you just need to start doing them. And all of that is true. But according to Jesus, when you've got something really big going on in your life and you're not seeing God come through, your first response needs to start with prayer. In other words, prayer should be your first response, not your last resort. I told you that before. That's why we had those bracelets printed, pray first, because you need to pray first going through your day. And our helplessness needs to lead us to prayer. Prayer is what encourages our spirit to be able to do the things that God has called us to do. Which think about it. You know what you're not doing when you're praying? Literally anything else. When you're really like devoting yourself to trying to engage with God, have a conversation with God. Not when you're just shotgunning prayers up in your car. Uh, not just when you're shotgunning prayers up before you eat. I mean when you're really imploring God. When you're begging God, when you're beseeching God, when you're begging Him to do what only He can do, you're not doing anything else. Not worried about anything else. You're helpless. Your helplessness has become an action. And people say, I'm too busy to pray. No, you're too busy not to pray. If you study this idea of prayer throughout Scripture, one of the things that you'll notice is the prayers of the few secure the blessings of the many. What if God has called you to be the one praying to see somebody else's success? Over and over, few people pray, many people are blessed. Look at Amos, look at Esther, look at Elijah, again and again. So maybe the problem isn't what you're doing or even what you're not doing. Maybe the problem is how you're doing it. Because let's be honest, how often do we really pray? I don't mean like laying in bed and you start to pray only to fall asleep guilty okay i mean how often do you block out the afternoon and you go lieutenant dan on the situation and you're up in the crow's nest just yelling and screaming and begging and imploring and you're not eating and you're not drinking you're just wholeheartedly praying because surely the disciples prayed don't you think when they're asking this asking god to get this demon kicked out they surely were like god um maybe you could show up now Uh, This mob is getting a little out of hand and they expected us to be able to... We've done this before, God. How come you don't show up now? And their prayers are like most of our prayers, what I call microwave prayers. God, do this immediately. God, answer me right now. Uh, God, help help me win the lottery. God, help, you know, do it. Let me understand my life quick. It's all about speed and it's all about us. Microwave prayers. A.W. Tozier once remarked, I have often wished that there were some way to bring modern Christians into a deeper spiritual life painlessly 
by short, easy lessons. But such wishes are in vain. No shortcuts exist. May not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corners of the kingdom like little children through the marketplace, chattering about everything but pausing to learn the true value of nothing. God has not bowed to our nervous haste nor embraced the methods of our machine age. It is well that we accept the hard truth now. Check this out. The man who would know God must give time to him. Amen, somebody. You got to give time to God if you want to know God. You realize how completely foreign this idea is to literally all the religions of the world? This idea of helplessness, not holiness, is absolutely contrary to every other world religion. Every other world religion teaches you that uh, if you follow God, if you give Him your good record, then God owes you a blessing. You follow the five pillars, the eightfold path, uh, the, the, the standards of Joseph Smith. If you do these things, you'll earn your way into the presence of God, where God will reward your faithfulness. It's the exact opposite of what Christianity says. Christianity says God gives you at infinite cost to himself a perfect record through Jesus Christ by grace. And in response to his grace, you get to live a life gladly for him. Religion says, start with me. I'm holy. I'm faithful. I've really summoned up all my trust. I've gotten rid of all my doubts. Now, God, you must work in my life. Yet here is a man who says, I don't have faith. I have a bunch of doubts. I'm quite certain I don't have what it takes, but help me anyway. And Jesus says, I can work with that. Jesus says, I can come alongside you in your doubts because that's saving faith. It's a way of saying, accept me, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. Isn't that good news? To one of you. It's great news. It's why you can choose to be made right with God right now and experience his power and presence the rest of your life. However, let me give you what is initially going to feel like bad news. You might want to jot this down. Our job is to ask. God's job is to do what's best. Our job is to ask. God's job is to do what's best. This feels like bad news because quite often what we feel like is best and what God feels like is best don't always line up. So let me be perfectly clear with you. This is a horrifyingly scary concept that our job is to ask and God's job is to do what's best. I just want to warn you, there's still time to just keep doing things on your own. Because if this story teaches us anything, it's that sometimes God, as he's doing what's best, it's going to look a whole lot worse. Look at verse 20. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus... It threw the child into a violent convulsion. He fell onto the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. That's pretty graphic. And what's Jesus do? Leaves him there in a violent convulsion, writhing and foaming. And verse 21, unconcerned, Jesus looks at the dad and says, how long is this bone going on? Uh, Does that really matter? Like, is that going to make it harder to heal if this has been going on for a long time? I mean, think if that's your kid. 
writhing and foaming on the ground in front of you and the man you came to for help isn't even paying attention. Looks at him, looks at you. How long is this been going on? It's like the boy's not even there. So a couple years ago, when we met at the school and we're having church in the gym, we're tearing everything down. There's some basketball goals, some little goals on the side. And we've told the kids, you're not allowed to play on the goals. And uh, they're kids. And they would play on the goals. And uh, Leighton, my son, was climbing on the goals, hanging on the rim. At one point, the goal tipped. He slipped. I didn't know at the time, but he slams down, hits his head hard enough that it knocks his glasses off naturally scares the people that are there. They start calling my name. I go walking over there. I don't really know what's going on. He's not moving. But as I get there, he's all laid funny. His legs bent weird. And uh, he's like looking in my direction. I kneel down and I say, Leighton. And he's breathing all weird. And he's looking right through me. He has no idea that I'm there. And I'm trying to call his name, figure out what's going on. All the rest of the kids are just as scared as I am, so they're not telling me what's going on. I have no idea what's happening. Is his neck broke? Is his back broke? Is his leg broke? And at some point, the eyes roll back into his head, and he's out. And I tell somebody, call 911. And the first responders, the first ones that get there are the firemen. And they start asking me questions. When's his birthday? I don't care when his birthday is. I want you to tell me if his neck's broke. Tell me what's going on. I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen. And this father comes to Jesus and puts his most precious thing in this life, his son. He puts him in Jesus' hand. And the first thing that happens, things get worse. But you started out deaf and mute. Then he starts seeing Jesus has a grand mal seizure. Things are about to go from worse to worser because in verse 26, he's dead. Now, we don't know if he's actually dead. The Bible says he appears to be dead, but everybody in the crowd thought, this brother ain't moving. He's gone. And so the very first thing that happens when Jesus begins to deal with the Father's most precious concern in this life is he's making everything worse. And I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've had people say to me, you know, Pastor, I gave my life to Christ and everything has just gone wrong. It's been a downward spiral ever since. And I, I can't, in complete candor, tell you how many times I've thought, God, you realize I'm with you, right? And it seems like everything else is going wrong. And uh, Laura calls it the Jordan curse, because anytime I get my hands on something, it ain't going right. And when my dad and I get together, things go from tragic to who knows. And I could have given you hundreds of examples of where that stuff happens. Now, thankfully, none of those things are to this extent but they are annoying nonetheless. And we get the benefit of the doubt because we see exactly what it is that Jesus is doing. It only takes moments for us to read exactly what Jesus is doing. However, in your life, might not take just moments. Might take months. Might take years for God to reveal what it is He's actually doing in your life. But here's what I'd like you to consider. There's a lot of people in this scene. Jesus, three disciples, nine disciples, people in the crowd, scribes, a father, a son, they're all feeling different things. Nine disciples, they're probably feeling shame. They couldn't do what they were once able to do, something they thought they should be able to do. The crowd is feeling amazed. You know, they're seeing Jesus. This is amazing at the presence. The scribes, they're argumentative. They're taunting. the, the, the Dad's probably concerned about everything that's happening with his son. Who knows what the kid is feeling? probably embarrassed by the fact that he's having a seizure right in front of a whole bunch of people. But who do you think are the ones that are feeling the most confident? 
Who do you think are the ones that are sitting back and going, you know what, I don't know what's going on right now, but I know it's going to be fine. Probably Peter, James, and John, right? Because they were just on the mountain. They were the ones who saw the glory of God. Uh, They're the ones who experienced the dazzling light. Everybody else has to be freaking out. And, you know, it's Mavericks like, I'm going to bring him in closer. And Goose like, you're going to do what? And everybody's freaking out just like that. And that's, that's the secret, though. Not, not bringing him closer so he'll fly right by. The secret is, in all things, seeing the glory of God. It's trusting God, even with your most precious things. That's why Moses in Exodus 33 says, God, show me your glory, because I need to experience you. Moses knew something most of us don't know. Uh, Moses, Moses knew that God's glory means significance. It means importance. Most of us in this life, we're glory starved. Most of us are fighting that sense that we're not important, that we have nothing to offer, that we're not making any dent. We're riddled with doubt, feel insignificant. We feel perplexed. We often question God. What are you doing? How is God even in whatever you feel in the blank? So we need people. We need people to love us. We need security. We need things. We need pets. We need uh, things in this life to keep us busy, to keep us our mind distracted from the fact that we're really glory starved. And when any of these precious things are your ultimate source of significance and security, when things go wrong, and they will go wrong, and when things are threatened or even taken away, you won't just be sad, which you should be. You won't just weep, which you ought to. You won't just be hurt. You will be hopeless. You will experience meaninglessness. So our job is to ask God. God's job is to do what's best. And sometimes what's best will initially look a whole lot worse, which is why we need to ask God for his glory. To, to come down and show us his presence. You remember what happened to Peter later in his life, shortly before, before Christ is crucified? He denies him. He's scared. He doubted. He forgot the glory he saw just mere weeks earlier on the mountain, right? Because when things get worse, it's hard to remember everything else that's gone right. So here's what I think we learn from that. You might want to jot this down. Never make a permanent decision based on a temporary emotion. Never make a permanent decision based on a temporary emotion. How many times could this man have left when he showed up and Jesus wasn't there? Permanent decision, his son never gets healed. Could have left when the disciples didn't heal him like he thought they would. Permanent decision, temporary emotion. Could have even left as his son's writhing and foaming on the mouth and he could have just scooped him up when Jesus didn't do anything and left. Permanent decision, temporary Emotion. See, it's why Jesus says you can only cast this time out through prayer and fasting because prayer and fasting takes time. Prayer and fasting forces you to slow down and not make a decision based on an emotion, but rather on the word of God that is, uh, as he reveals himself to you. Prayer and fasting allows you to experience God's glory firsthand. And anytime you have a decision to make, your feelings have to line up with what God says, and it's rooted in the Bible. God says it's okay to have doubt. You can doubt. That's not wrong. It's okay to be nervous, but it's not okay to quit. It's not okay to stay there. And when God reveals himself to you, it's what you have to do to follow through. That's faith. It's being obedient. 
at the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Keep praying. Keep fasting. God will only do what's best. Amen, somebody. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you have made to us, that you can only do what's best. God, forgive us for those times where we've looked at what's happening in our lives and it's looked like everything was getting worse. God, we're asking you right now, I'm I'm asking you to reveal to us those times and places in our lives where we feel like things are worse, but we're asking you to do what is only best. Help speak to our hearts. Help reveal your plan for our lives to us. God, forgive us where we've fallen short. Make us new in the presence of your glory. If you're here this morning and watching online, whatever it is, and God has been speaking to your heart, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about this message of grace. That it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did for you. That as God looks down, He sees His Son Jesus living in you. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus did for you. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you too can be saved. This is a step of obedience. I just invite you to pray along with me and say, God, I believe in your son Jesus that life is not about me, but rather about him. Change my heart. Make me new. Give me the power that you've promised in your Holy Spirit. Thank you for saving me. God, thank you for new life. Thank you for the promise of salvation. Please bless each person here as they endure the week ahead. Give them opportunity to share the faith that they have in your son with somebody else. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.